Blog Talk Radio. God's Grandeur, the Catholic case for intelligent design. That's coming up next right here on the Parker J. Cole Show. Hi, and welcome to the Parker J. Cole Show. I'm your host, the Queen, Parker J. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, we're going to be talking to my guest co-host and contributor today, Dr. Brian Miller. He is a research coordinator for the Center for Science and Culture, or you may know them as the Discovery Institute. That's right. We are talking to one of the main people behind the intelligent design movement and how we get information about intelligent design. We're going to be talking to him in just a few moments. As always, I want to thank you for your support. We have been showcasing Christian authors worldwide for the past 10 years. As God gives us grace, we'll continue to do so. To find out how you can help out, simply go to patreon.com slash write stuff. See what you can do. And as always, we covet your prayers. To stay up to date with PJC Media, simply go to pjcmedia.net. Click that pink follow button. You'll never miss a show. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and stay updated for uploads and more. Go ahead, subscribe today. Dr. Brian Miller is Research Coordinator for the Center for Science and Culture at Discovery Institute. He holds a BS in Physics with a minor in Engineering from MIT and a PhD in Physics from Duke University. He speaks internationally on topics of intelligent design and the impact of worldviews on society and helps to manage the ID 3.0 research program. Having been a primary organizer of the Conference on Engineering in the Life Sciences, he also has consulted on organizational development and strategic planning, and he is a technical consultant for the startup, a virtual incubator dedicated to bringing innovation to the marketplace. He has contributed to multiple books and journals covering the debate over intelligent design, including The Mystery of Life's Origins, The Continuing Controversy, The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, and inference review. He's a regular contributor to Evolution News and Science Today and the Idea of the Future podcast. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you because, as I said before we started recording, I remember when Discovery Institute really started to make headway back in the early 2000s, and now I get a chance to talk to one of you. I really want to delve into the book that you contributed to, which is God's grandeur, the Catholic case for intelligent design. But I want to peel back some more about you because I read your bio, which is quite impressive. But what about you? How would you describe yourself to just regular people who are listening to us? Well, just my academic background is I studied uh, physics with a minor in engineering at MIT. And then I uh, studied a PhD in complex systems physics at Duke University. And I have been studying the issue of intelligent design for about 30 years, and I've been working for Discovery Institute for about seven years. Uh, on the personal side, um, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I was raised in the church, but when I went to college, I was challenged in my faith, largely through the question of science, because um, I read Richard Dawkins, the blind watchmaker. And through other challenges, I became convinced that belief in God was just a psychological crutch, that people who, people were, who were people of faith, were probably less scientific, they were more emotionally driven, and I just became convinced that it, it was all just a delusion. And that was really discouraging because I realized that if I'm just an accident of nature, that life really doesn't have meaning or purpose. 
because it didn't matter if I was happy or sad or kind or cruel because I would die, my memories would be lost, and eventually our planet would be destroyed when the sun exploded. So that's kind of where it was. So I said, God, I don't know if you exist, but if you do exist, you have to prove it to me because I'm a scientist. I just can't do this blindly. And what happened over the next several years is God, God directed me and um, helped guided me to meet some top-level scientists, uh, people that were philosophers, people from other disciplines that really helped to bring me back to faith. And a lot of my journey back to faith was really through the science, because a famous uh, statement is that a little science might pull you away from God, but a lot of science will bring you right back. I'm so glad that you mentioned what you just said about that quote, a little science may draw you away, but a lot will bring you back because the very fact that we can understand the world around us is powerful evidence of an intelligent designer, which is the whole premise, I think, behind the ID movement. I want to go back to something you said, because a lot of students deal with this. You went to college, and college is supposed to be a place where you are challenged in your beliefs. I don't think that's a bad thing. Would you say that in college, there was a concentrated effort to rip your beliefs from you? Well, I went to MIT as an undergraduate, and that's a school that's much more pragmatic. They want to teach you how to be a good engineer or a good scientist. So they really, they don't really um, care so much what you believe personally. Uh, but I did take a class on the Bible from a secular perspective, and that definitely was pr presenting a view of reality where there was no creator, where religion was just sort of a, a, a social construct. What, what I found is that the challenge that I face, many people face, is it wasn't just the, the, the university, but Western society in large has really fallen into a captivity, an intellectual captivity of secular philosophies. So if you watch TV, if you read, the, if you watch the news, if you go to most educational institutions, people present reality uh, from that perspective of materialism. And materialism is just sort of the philosophy that there is no God, or if there is a God, he does, he's not involved in the world. And that everything in the world is simply a product of blind, undirected processes. And people aren't trying to force that view on people. It's just kind of the backdrop. It's just kind of the, the furniture of our sense of reality. And if you're unaware of how what you're hearing and seeing is biased by that lens, you will fall into that framework yourself. And it took me a very concerted effort to break free from that framework and then do a more intensive study of history and science and philosophy. Um, to recognize how the information I was receiving was through a very powerful lens. But then when you look at the entire reality um, of history, of science, you realize that the true picture of reality is a reality that points to a creator. But but if you if you just take what you hear at face value, you won't come to that conclusion. You mentioned here that if everything is material, then life has no purpose or meaning. I would also add to that that pain has no purpose because pain is very much a real part of reality. So these are questions that aren't specifically answered by scientific means. Do you think because these questions exist that you have to have more than scientific knowledge? Oh, that's definitely the case because what happens is Study of science will give you some understanding of reality. When you study science, you see that there's purpose behind the universe. There's evidence of the mind behind the laws of physics. You see evidence of design and biology. But that's only part of the picture. You then have to ask certain questions like, why is the world in such a mess? Why is there so much pain? Why is there so much suffering? 
And to answer those questions, you have to go beyond just the science and go into history, philosophy, study of religion. And again, that's part of why I'm a Christian is because the Christian framework um, gives a narrative that actually makes sense of the totality of our human experience and all the evidence. So it makes sense that you see design in the world because we have a creator. But it also makes sense that there is such a mess because we fell from God, that people in the past rebelled against their creator and basically said, we're going to do this without you. And when they broke their relationship with God, that led to the sickening of the human heart, that led to the dysfunctionality of individuals, that's led to the dysfunctionality in society. With intelligent design, you and your other colleagues seek to give evidentiary reasons to believe in that great mind behind the universe. In Christian circles, intelligent design is often mistaken for a religion, but I would say it's not a religion. So go ahead and expand on what exactly is intelligent design. Uh, so what you have is you have uh, certain Christians who wish to reconcile science with the Bible or the Bible with science. So the conversation really begins with the biblical text. And I'm not criticizing that. That's a perfectly reasonable approach for Christians. But what we're doing is a little bit different because I work with people that are Christian, people that are, are Jewish, people that aren't particularly religious. And we've come together because our goal is simply to find truth in the empirical data that we see in the world. And what happens is the totality evidence uh, points to a design, a mind behind the world. And that's a conclusion that doesn't necessarily require a religious text. It's something that's just a fact that we have to, have to, re to recognize. And then what happens is once you recognize that fact, that can lead many to deeper questions, like who, what is that mind or who is that mind? And then many people will first find the evidence of design, and that will then lead them to faith. But the question of whether design, it, whether it's design in the world is a scientific question. And it relates to a debate that goes back to like 500 BC between the ancient atomists like Democritus and the people that believed in design like, like Plato and Aristotle. So this is, this is a question that has been wrestled with for like two, two and a half millennia. And what we've recognized is that the evidence from science points to design. And if you start from that premise based on the evidence, that will help you be a better scientist. That'll help you to understand the world in a way that's more accurate. It'll help you do better research. So that's, that's who we are, is people that will primarily focus on the science as, um, as a scientific enterprise. Although many of us, like myself, will then talk about the implications of the science to larger issues. I know one of your colleagues is Dr. Steve Meyer, and he is pretty prolific in speaking out about intelligent design. He comes from a scientific philosophical background as he talks about this. And I've seen a couple of your articles on evolution news and science today as well. Uh, I love reading them. They're highly informative, educational, and they really tackle sometimes broader scopes. Sometimes they tackle more specific things. They're like they may talk about a particular study. You said that truth for intelligent design theorists, is that the correct term to refer to yourself as? Yes, that's okay. a good term. Good. So, and I'm just going by what I've read. So, intelligent design theorist is truth is found in the empirical data, and then you go back to a mind. And that actually makes doing your research, whatever that discipline is, easier because you're coming from the premise that I can understand what's going on in the world. And I think that's very important because from a 
Darwinian and neo-Darwinian evolutionary standpoint, it's all random. And if it's all random, then it doesn't matter. And it goes back to the other points I made about pain being real and being important. So I just kind of wanted to add my two little cents to that, Dr. Miller. My next question is this. You also talked about when you were coming from a materialistic point of view, you said, then the planet explodes when the sun goes supernova. There is something very dark about that. Just It's very dark. It's basically just the end of some civilization in the great black cosmos. Why are some people drawn to that nihilistic view in the sciences? That's a really great question. And what happens is for many people, that's just the world they're brought up in. Uh, in fact, one of my favorite movies is The Matrix with Neo and Morpheus. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, you know where I'm going with this. And yeah. what happens is the story is that um, for those few of you listeners who haven't watched it yet, that's an assignment to watch it this weekend. But the story is that these robots took over the world and they enslaved humanity by plugging electrodes into their brains and projecting a false reality before their eyes in order to control them. In the same way, when people are born into Western culture, they're born into a framework, a story, that we are just simply accidents of nature, that there is no creator, there is no influence in the world outside of natural processes. And if you don't question the reality that you're presented with, you'll always be trapped within that framework. And what happens, though, is some people want to be trapped in that framework. Like there was this, this really a famous scene in The Matrix where Neo is walking with um, Morpheus in this simulation, and they're around all these people in black coats. And what Morpheus says is most of these people don't want to be in, unplugged from the matrix. They're hopefully, hopelessly enamored and dependent upon the world system. And what happens is that's the way many people are. Is it's just so comfortable to follow the crowd. And it's so risky to speak the truth with people that have become accustomed to deception that people just want to kind of keep their heads, heads down and, and follow the crowd. Um, but the truth is, if you just follow the crowd, you're living a lie and you're living a story without a purpose. Because if we're just accidents of nature, if life is just an accident, then there is no purpose. It doesn't matter how we live. But if, the, 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 but if you embrace the true story that we're created by God for purpose, then you can encounter that purpose and live for a, a goal that will resonate for eternity. So that's really significant. Oh, oh but, but to go back to your question, um, many people, like Aldous Huxley, said very explicitly that we want to, uh, to live a life without meaning and purpose. We don't want there to be a designer because then we can do whatever we want. Because this traditional morality constrains us. Because if you're designed, then the designer usually will have a manual for how you're supposed to live, what we would call moral law. And if you don't follow that moral law, bad things can happen. And many people said, I don't really want to follow this higher law. I want to do whatever I want. So meaninglessness was a, was a source of liberation, is what Huxley said. And particularly, they want to be liberated with their sex lives. So there is a lot of motivation to embrace the matrix. I also think, too, we think that having no boundaries is freedom. But having boundaries is giving you more freedom because you know what you can do. And, of course, I have to use one of the greats of Christian fiction, which is Frank Peretti and his book, Piercing the Darkness. And he talked about the young lady who wandered in a field without boundaries. And at first it's fun, but you don't know where to stop, where to end. And you just continue to let things happen to you 
until you're just lost in the sea that you cannot navigate that goes on into a dark abyss. When you know what your parameters are, you can build the life you're looking for. You can build the knowledge you want and everything because you have boundaries. And I think this is very important. I think this is a tangent topic to intelligent design as well. That's why there's also a philosophical component with intelligent design that I think is quite inspiring. I'm going to read a quick comment from a review of this book, God's Grandeur, The Catholic Case for Intelligent Design. And it simply says this, I'm not a scientist, a philosopher, or a theologian. I'm not even Catholic. But this is an inspiring book with a beautiful title. The connection with Gerard Manley Hopkins is just lovely. The book, for me, goes a long way in healing today's fact slash value split by pointing toward the ground that unites both, a real encouragement for those of us living in a postmodern society increasingly dominated by, and I love this phrase, smiling nihilism. I love that phrase because that's exactly what it is today. Nothing matters. We're all going to die. Go and eat some pizza. That's what this smiling nihilism is. And I want to talk about that because in this book, God's grandeur, we are pointing to creation as a symbol of the great mind behind it. And we're coming at it from a Catholic point of view. And now this book is made up of different chapters by different people. And Dr. Miller wrote the first two chapters that we're going to discuss. We're also going to give you an overall view of the book as well. So first of all, Dr. Miller, tell our listeners what they can expect once they pick up their copy. Oh, certainly. So this um, book was uh, spearheaded by Ann Gager. And Ann Gager is a very faithful Catholic and a very talented scientist. Um, she studied at Harvard. She studied at University of Washington. She was really has a top academic pedigree and, and did, you know, postdoctoral research. And what happens is she realized that a lot of the books written on intelligent design generally reach more Protestant audiences. So she wanted to uh, have a book more directed towards the Catholic audience. And the, the, the content of the book should actually be very valuable to everybody. It's not, there's very little in it that would be particularly only for Catholics. But what the book does, which most other books don't, is it talks not just about the science, but also about church history. Like what did the early church fathers and doctors of the church believe? It talks about theology. It talks about philosophy. And what the book actually shows is one, that the scientific evidence very, very strongly points to design far better than the materialist evolutionary framework. Two, the recognition that life shows clear evidence of design is something that Christians have believed since the beginning. It's really just a modern perversion of, of, of Christian theology that suggests that Christians shouldn't talk about the clear evidence of design. Uh, and three, it's completely consistent with Catholic teaching as well as with uh, most Protestant denominations that are faithful to the historic uh, Christian church. Also, the book talks about how when you recognize design, it helps you to recognize the grandeur of creation. It helps you to embrace beauty as a transcendent reality and not just as a random accident of some evolutionary process. It also talks about how the understanding and acceptance of design is really gives you a solid foundation for ethics, for morality, for theology, while if you believe we're simply an ax in nature, just the product of some undirected evolutionary process, it, it creates a foundation upon which Christianity collapses. So that's what people will come to see in the book. 
I want to talk about beauty for a second because beauty, we typically see it as an aesthetic, but that aesthetic is necessary. Beauty, I believe, is objective and is a part of creation. This becomes, I think, important as we talk, as we talk about the grander scheme of God's grandeur. People who say that there is no beauty, in a sense, reject the idea that God can't create beautiful things. Do you think that is an important part of the conversation as it relates to God's grandeur in the book, The Catholic Case for Intelligent Design? Yeah, absolutely, because um, historic theology has always been based on the true, the good, and the beautiful. And truth would be theological truth, and, and most Christians recognize the value of that. The good would be like ethics, morality, and most recognize that. But beauty is also important because beauty deals with the experience, the aesthetic, the emotion, um, the relational aspect of our relationship with God. Because beauty, in a Christian sense, is a manifestation of the goodness and magnificence of God in creation. So something is beautiful because it reflects God's purpose, his order, his intentions, his character. Um, what we recognize as ugly often is the reflection of a creation that's fallen, a creation that's out of alignment with God's purposes. Um, so beauty is deeply theological and central to the Christian faith. And in, in, in beauty can only rest on the idea of design, because what happened is God designed our minds with the capacity to recognize the transcendent reality of beauty, which is why people from all cultures practically will recognize the beauty of a sunset or the beauty of a hummingbird. Um, but if you believe that we're simply the product of some blind evolutionary process, then there is no such thing as objective beauty. Our perception of beauty is simply what happens due to mutations in our past, uh, filtered through natural selection, shaping our brain in a certain way to help us to survive. So the reason we might see something as beautiful in a Darwinian framework or a neo-Darwinian framework is simply because of these random selective forces that shaped our mind to perceive it as beauty. But if a person sees, let's say, um, a, a painting by Michelangelo is beautiful, and another person sees a painting of severed body parts, uh, th there's no objectivity between that choice. Uh, in fact, um, seeing severed body parts as beautiful might be helpful from a Darwinian sense because it helps you to find more food. So again, the whole idea of beauty is dependent on a design framework. It's funny that you mentioned about the severed body parts because in my crazy mind, I said there could be some beauty in severed body parts. It's the way you lay them out. <laughs> So uh, I'm just being funny, but even sometimes the darker things in life have some beauty to them. And I think that's a shadowy reflection of God's magnificence. And what do I mean by that? I'm just talking about how you can have someone who works with, say, a forensic. I know an author who's a forensic investigator, and he works with forensics. He goes out to the crime scenes and stuff like that. And there's beauty in understanding that there are clues all around this dead body that can help you solve a case. So I guess that's kind of like what I mean there. So I bet a forensic person may look at a severed body parts and may find beauty in that. <laughs> oh, I'm being silly. But uh, but that's just one thing. But I love how you said beauty rests on the fact that there is design. And it shows the transcendent reality of that because many different cultures appreciate many of the same things. I would like to ask you a quick question before we delve into the book here. And I want to definitely talk about the two chapters that you contributed to this book. I was listening to a podcast about a with a gentleman who who is a materialist through and through, and he was talking to a man who said we live in a simulation, sort of like the Matrix. 
And the man who's a materialist said, I can enjoy a beautiful sunset even though I am a materialist. Do you think there is a dissonance between what he just said and his worldview? What happens is because we're creating God's image, we will have certain common uh, tendencies. Like we have a tendency to desire justice. We have a tendency to appreciate the beauty of the world. We have a tendency to enjoy relationships. What happens is for people that are materialists, often they'll live with a cognitive dissonance where they'll consciously accept the claim that we're just accidents of nature, that we're just basically atoms in motion. But you can't live that way and remain sane. So people will tend to separate their life between the, the, the realm of facts and truth in their mind and the realm of value and purpose that they consider more subjective, but they still have to live in that realm to be sane. So it doesn't surprise me at all that people live with that cognitive dissonance, but it is a cognitive dissonance because if you're really honest, if you're a materialist, then you really have no reason for hope. I mean, it makes no difference whether you enjoy a sunset, whether you're a serial killer, because at the end of the day, we are all just simply going to cease to exist. That brings me to the epigraph that is used at the beginning of this book that the reviewer mentioned, and it says, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? And that's from Gerard Manley Hopkins. And I can't think of a better epigraph for this book. And you already gave us the overview of this book, but I want to delve into the two chapters that you did contribute to this book. So the first chapter we're going to discuss that you put in this book is, Does Cosmology Support Cosmic Design? Go ahead and tell our listeners what they can expect when they pick up that chapter. Certainly. So the chapter will begin by talking about what was one of the most um, shocking uh, discoveries at the turn of the 20th century. And that was the recognition that our universe had a beginning. Because if you're a materialist, if you believe all that there is is matter and energy, then you really need to believe that the universe is eternal. Because that's the only way it could be self-existent, as if it always existed. But when Einstein uh, developed the theory of general relativity and then people applied that to the universe, they recognized that the universe had to have had a beginning because the universe is currently expanding like a balloon. So if you go backwards in time, that balloon gets smaller and smaller and smaller until everything begins. Time, matter, space, and energy all began, which that points to there ha be having to be a creator outside of time and space, an immaterial entity that started everything, which is very consistent with the Christian God. The chapter also talks about how the universe seems to have been designed with life in mind. So um, an analogy that I use, that, that people like Stephen Meyer and many others have used, is that if you imagined that you get a kit, a machine for Christmas, and that, unit, that machine creates universes. And this machine has lots of dobs and niles where you can control the details of the universe you're going to start to create. So if you turn one dial up, gravity gets stronger. If you turn it down, gravity gets weaker. Another dial controls the mass of a, like a proton or neutron. Another dial will control the, the disorder in the universe. What happens is those, many of those dials have to be set very, very, very carefully or else life would not exist in our universe. So some dials would be like the strength of the electromagnetic force that 
if you were to turn that forest up a few percent or turn it down a few percent, our universe wouldn't have enough carbon or oxygen to support life. And another example I use is the force of gravity. If you imagine um, all reasonably expected values of the force of gravity, which be between zero and the, and the strong nuclear force, um, the, the chance of you randomly choosing a value for gravity that would allow for life would be like one chance in 10 to the 35. That's a one with 35 zeros behind it. So the precision needed to set the, this dial to set gravity properly for a universe to support life would be like the precision for you to hit a target, which is one inch by one inch or one centimeter by one centimeter at the other end of our solar system. I then go through a lot of attempts to rationalize away this evidence, things like a multiverse theory, attempts to create cosmological models that don't require a beginning. And I show that the scientific evidence and everything we know about cosmology and our universe points to the fact that there had to be a mind behind our universe, a mind that both started the universe and a mind that chose the right details for our universe for us to exist. I want to go back to your comment about the multiverse real quick, because WLC, he, I haven't read him in a while, but WLC has, I'm sorry, um, William Lane Craig had stated that the multiverse was really stretching it when it came to creation. I don't know if he still adheres to that or not, but with the multiverse, you're going to get people coming back at you saying, but a multiverse, life would be different for that multiverse. And how would you respond to that? Because... In our entertainment, like Marvel Cinematic Universe, we can't get out of the multiverse. It doesn't matter if Loki dies because he's going to come back anyway. No one dies. Death is not a bad thing, people. Let him die. Okay. Let someone else come along and take over the reins. But um, what would you say to that? Because that's a huge objection to the idea that the way life is now is the way it's meant to be. Uh, a really interesting cartoon series is Rick and Morty. And it was um, the writers of it. One was an atheist, one's an agnostic. And the, the series is based on a multiverse. And you really see the, the episodes are permeated by this materials philosophy. And what you find in Rick and Morty is there's no hope, there's no purpose, there's no value to hit to people. And the multiverse essentially robs us of value because nothing we do matters because things would be happening in other universes anyway. So it, it doesn't really matter for us. Um, so it's a very depressing framework, but it's also scientifically implausible because if you want to justify the existence of a multiverse where you have all these universes with slightly different laws, you have to ask, well, what generated those universes? So there's been different theories that people have used to try to explain a multiverse, things like eternal inflation, uh, things like string landscape theory, things like quantum cosmology. But when you go to every single theory that people appeal to, to justify multiverse, those theories also have to be carefully fine-tuned to produce a multiverse in the right way such that a one universe would support life. So the fine-tuning and design are inescapable. It's kind of like if you have a carpet and the carpet's too large for your, for your room, there'll be a bulge in the carpet. And that bulge is kind of like the fine-tuning of the laws of physics that we see in our universe. And a temptation is to push down the bulge. But if you do that because the carpet's too big, the bulge just appears someplace else. And that's what you see with the science. Every attempt to rationalize away the fine-tuning of the laws of nature must appeal to some higher set of laws, some universe generator. But those laws also have to be fine-tuned or designed 
to produce a universe that supports life. So the, the evidence to design is really inescapable. I like that you use Rick and Morty. I used to watch that show quite often. I actually enjoyed it, even though I could not escape the nihilistic viewpoints of the show. And it actually spurred a one of my books I wrote, uh, Dr. Miller, that I talked to you about offline. But it actually spurred that because I just didn't like the premise that it had. But it was entertaining in its own way. It's definitely for adults. <laughs> and I wouldn't want anyone who is weak in their faith to watch it because it does have very depressing elements throughout there. The next thing I have to ask you is aliens. Now, there's a lot of talk about UFOs. Then you have people saying, well, the aliens create the universe in some laboratory. And it seems far out, far-fetched, but there are people who are holding on to this, particularly with the whole UFO phenomenon that's currently taking the rage right now. What, what happens is this really gets to my second chapter where I talk about the origin of life. And um, to get something even remotely similar to life, the first cell requires design because life by its nature is something that exists in a state of disequilibrium with the world around it. So if, if anything dies, it breaks apart into simple chemicals. To maintain a complex structure as a living organism, you must have lots of complex machines that process energy. You must have lots of information. Uh, you must have a blueprint, which is what establishes the organizational pattern for life. So it's a physical impossibility for anything to produce life that's not a mind. And that includes both us, the life we're familiar with, or any other alien life you could imagine. So anything that's based on material, substance, physics, and chemistry can only exist if a mind shapes it and molds it for that purpose. So appealing to aliens really won't help because those aliens themselves would have to be created. And God exists because he was not created. God is the true um, essence of, of power, of truth, who pre-exists everything, who's the source of all creation. So it had to be a God that created our universe and a God who acted inside of our universe to create life. Now, could other life form, forms exist? It's entirely possible. But if they do exist, then God would have created them. And I'm highly skeptical if they visited us. I mean, one thing that's really fascinating about um, people that claim to have encountered UFOs and aliens, is that the cases that's incredible, almost all those people either were involved with the occult or closely associated with people in the occult. So it seems likely that a lot of what people perceive as alien encounters may, might be spiritual beings, malevolent spiritual beings. I would say interdimensional, and that has a lot to do with uh, Mike, the late Mike Heiser, his work in the unseen realm that really kind of underpins all that, but we can't talk about that right now because we'll be on that here another hour. But uh, really have one, I really enjoyed the two chapters that you have dedicated to this. And dear listener, when you pick up your copy of God's Grandeur, the Catholic Case for Intelligent Design, you're going to be like that one reviewer said, just in awe of what our Lord has done in this universe. Now it's coming from a Catholic, um, a Catholic premise. And I think that's important because one thing the Catholic Church is very good at is the church history. And they gain faith from those who have gone before. And that's the exciting part of this. What have others gone before us dealt with? And for those of you who are Catholic, you may be wondering, maybe floundering a bit. Maybe I can't be Catholic and be a scientist. Well, we're talking to a man here who is. <laughs> and so there's many more out there who can help you. So make sure you go ahead, pick up God's Grandeur, the Catholic Case for Intelligent Design, and it's available wherever books are sold. 
when you saw the number of people that you were collaborating with, with this book, do you think you would just have this powerhouse of knowledge that anyone can benefit from? Yeah, I, I mean, I really believe this book would really benefit anyone, um, whether they are Catholic or Protestant or Jewish or Muslim or agnostic. They're just trying to pursue the truth. Um, and it definitely brings in the strength of the Catholic focus on church history and theology. But the, the, the vast majority of the material would be deeply inspiring to people of any background. Lastly, I want us to kind of end on this notion about pursuing the truth. Truth, I think, is important because nowadays we live in a postmodern, post-truth society. And that basically means it doesn't matter if it's true. I just don't care. And this is extremely harmful because it leads to chaos. So the question I have for you, Dr. Miller, is this. Does truth exist? And if it exists, does it matter? Uh, yes. I mean, I absolutely believe truth exists because we live in a real world with real laws of nature, with a real history behind it. So if we understand the truth behind why our universe was created and how our universe was created, it shapes everything about our lives. So for instance, if you buy a car and you believe that car was just produced by tornadoes and junkyards, you won't believe that there's a manual for that car. So you'll do whatever you want with the car, whatever feels right. So you might put the water in the gas tank or the oil in the radiator, but what will happen? Because you're abusing the car, you're using it in a way it's not designed, the car will break down very quickly. It'll, it'll, it'll not fulfill its purpose. On the other hand, because the car was designed, if you take the car manual and follow it, that car will function to its greatest potential. In the same way, because we're created by God, if you understand that our purpose is to know God and serve him, that's what's going to lead to a life of the greatest joy, um, the greatest fulfillment, and a life that will make an impact that resonates for eternity. And, of course, we have the hope that God will restore creation, and that's something that will continue forever. If you don't believe that we're created, if you think we're just an accident, there is no purpose, there is no goal, there is no meaning, there is no hope. So part of the hope of writing this book is to show people that they need to break free from the materials matrix and come into a reality that will give them the, a sense of purpose, value, and meaning. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for being with me on the show today. I really enjoyed having you and cannot wait to have you back and have you back real soon. Uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And we were talking today to Dr. Brian Miller. He is one of the authors of the book, God's Grandeur, The Catholic Case for Intelligent Design. It's available wherever books are sold. There is a scripture quote in here that says, For from the greatness and beauty of created things comes a corresponding perception of their creator. Wisdom 13.5. And I'm so excited to be able to showcase this book because I love talking about intelligent design, creation, evolution, because it really underpins why we are here that we are created with a purpose and for a purpose, and God has a purpose for us, that we're not just random things lying in a big square box like, a, like blocks just to be tossed aside, that our experiences matter, that our pain matters, that justice matters. All of it stems from the fact that we are created with purpose. I also like to showcase this because there are some people who are on the fence and I think intelligent design gives you that mechanism that you can follow the evidence wherever it leads. It has a more minimalist view of creation and evolution to have you decide, okay, what does the evidence say about this particular thing? So go ahead, pick up your copy today of God's Grandeur, the Catholic Case for Intelligent Design. 
and I know you will not be disappointed. Thank you so much for joining me for this edition of the Parker J. Cole Show. You have a wonderful, absolutely glorious, blessed day, and God bless.